0: It's been estimated by one Christian author that there are approximately 125 commands in the Gospels given directly by Jesus Christ. Of those, 21 of them deal with the subject of fear. And so in 21 different times, Jesus commands us things like, do not be afraid, do not fear, have courage, take heart, be of good cheer. The second most common really command or group of commands deals with the issue of love or the subject of love. Uh, of God commanding us to love God and, of course, to uh, love others, love our neighbors. And so if quantity is any indication of significance or of any importance at all, then it reminds us that Jesus is sincerely concerned for our fears, yours and mine. Think about it for a moment, Jesus, of all the commands that Jesus has given, He doesn't repeat any other command more than this one, do not be afraid. It's interesting to me because I I sit back and when I read that, I, I was thinking to myself, why in the world would that be? And the author that I read it in, he just continues on of why, but here's why I think that that might be that Jesus addresses so much of our fears is because we have so many of them. And I think the reason that he addresses the fears as well is because the bottom line, I don't think that there's anything that is more debilitating to a Christian's life than fear. See, fear is enslavement fear really keeps us and impedes us from pursuing after God and pursuing uh, His will. Fear, when we fear, it it, it robs us and steals us of the joy of our salvation. The problem is, is that all of us fear. Most of us fear just from time to time, but the truth is some, and it seems like a growing number, seem to fear almost all of the time. And so it's important to remember once again that that Jesus is concerned about us and concerned about the worry that you and I have. And what we find is, is that in his grace and by his mercy, he addresses it in the word of God, uh, in in the gospels like the book of Luke and in a passage like we've read this morning. What I wanna do is I I wanna give you and just remind you of the context. Jesus and his disciples, they are headed towards Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem where he will be arrested, he will suffer and he will die for the sins of the world. We know that. And when he dies and he ascends to the right hand of the Father, his disciples are going to be left behind. And Jesus is concerned for them because he understands that every day is going to bring just a, uh, just a myriad of different opportunities for them to live in fear. And if they live in fear, how are they going to live for him? It's one or the other. And so what Jesus does here is he really addresses, I think, at least two fears that are common amongst believers But what I love is he doesn't just address the fears. He also gives us some solutions to overcome them. Let me address these two common fears. The first is this, the fear of discovery. The fear of discovery. Look at verse 1, if you will, in your Bibles. The Bible says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, that first phrase, in the meantime, is important because what it does is it connects what happened at the end of chapter 11 with what happens at the beginning of chapter 12. What happens at the end of chapter 11, I chose to kind of skip over that portion because I'm summing it up in this particular passage, is that Jesus is invited to a dinner party by a Pharisee, and in the midst of the dinner party, a big fight breaks out between Jesus and the religious leaders, the religious leaders being the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus begins to call them out. And he begins to not only tell them what they're sinful of and what they're guilty of, but he begins to cast three woes and pronounce three woes on them. Well, as you can imagine, nobody likes to be called out. Nobody likes somebody to cast woes on them. And so they get angry. And and in the end of verse 53, chapter 11, it says this. And as he went away from there, meaning Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something that he might say. So they've had enough of Christ. They're tired of him. So they want to demean him in the eyes of others. They want to discredit him and they want to destroy him. Hey, that's three D's. Uh, Anyway. I just noticed that anyway and so they want to do all of these things and the way that they're going to do it is they're going to listen to him and so whenever crowds are gathered this group of religious leaders are going to be in the midst of it not as fans but as foes and they're going to be listening to everything that jesus says because they want to use his words to use against him and ultimately to destroy him and so here we see jesus leaving the party and when he goes out Crowds, the Bible said, begin to gather around him. Now they're getting larger and larger and larger at this point. It says thousands, literally in the Greek, it means tens of thousands of people are gathering, so many so that they're trampling on one another. And here Jesus turns his attention from from the Pharisees and the religious leaders and their sin. And now he directs and he begins to look at his own disciples and he begins to warn them that they are vulnerable to the same sins that he had pronounced upon the Pharisees. He, he actually says to them, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. One of the sins that they were most guilty of is the sin of hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy just simply means to play a role. It's like an actor. In fact, that's where its origins actually come from, was from the theater itself. And and so when Jesus comes and he tells them, he says, beware of their hypocrisy. You're vulnerable to this hypocrisy. Uh, Well, let me me back up. We need to make sure that we understand what hypocrisy means, right? Uh, Hypocrisy, just in this clearest, simplest understanding, is to pretend to be something that you're not. In the context of the religious leaders, they were pretending to be all about God when in all actuality they were all about themselves. They're two completely different things. And he comes and he warns them not to fall to the same exact sin, that they're going to be vulnerable to commit that same bit of hypocrisy as they go out and they begin to minister. And, and he identifies here, if, if, if you notice, he, 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 he compares this hypocrisy with leaven. Leaven, of course, is yeast. And whenever leaven is used in the New Testament, it really is used to describe something that grows and how specifically it grows. The idea is that something begins very small and then it begins to grow almost really, you don't even notice it growth, but eventually it's large. For example, sometimes he uses it in a good way. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus will use it as how the kingdom of God grows. That it starts very small, just with 12 apostles, and then before you know it, at the end of time, without people actually seeing and can tell that it's actually growing, eventually the gospel will permeate the whole world, and people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group will be saved and will believe. But, but, but what he's saying is, is most of the time that this idea of leaven is not used in a positive way, but rather in a negative way to refer specifically to sin. Because this is what sin does. It starts so small, but then it begins to permeate everything that it's attached to. And it grows and it grows and it grows. Here he's talking about hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is that way. Somebody begins by by wanting to cover up who they are. They, They want to kind of make people think that they're better or more mature or more godly than what they truly are. So they have to deceive in order to convince people to do it. So they tell a lie or they do something, they'll make the people feel as though they are more spiritual than they are, and then that's just the beginning. They have to continue the lies and continue the deception on in order to make sure that they're not ultimately discovered. And so this hypocrisy is a threat to every one of us, isn't it? And it's because we're proud. And because we're proud and because we are always overly concerned about what other people think about us, we want to make sure that they see us in a particular light, And so what we're willing to do is we're we're willing, just like the Pharisees, and just like was vulnerable to the disciples at this point, we're willing to be able to cover up by using really religious words and a lot of religious activities, just so that when people see us, they don't see really ultimately who we are. And so there's several dangers to this, of course, as you can imagine. One of the greatest dangers, and this is what Jesus tells us, is that it will always be discovered. Will always be discovered. Jesus says in verse two, He says, "Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that that will not be known." Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the private rooms shall be proclaimed to the housetops. So, what Jesus is saying is, is that many times the hypocrisy that you and I are guilty of will, in this life, be revealed. It will be discovered. And this is a little frightening, but we see that this happens all the time. We hear about a student. uh, They're well-known. They're well-respected because of all the great grades they're getting. And sometime down the line, you find out that they were a big cheat. And they stole. They were guilty of intellectual theft by plagiarizing other people's material. Or you hear about an accountant that is well-respected in, in the company, and he's been there for 10 years, and he's received all kinds of awards uh, for, 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 for how, uh, how much money that they've saved the company, and they find out that he's been embezzling money for 10 years. You find the pastor who's preached on marriage and over again, and, and eventually you, you find out that uh, he's been committing adultery on his wife for a period of time. The idea is you can push this down, you can hide it, you can do whatever you want, but eventually it is going to be revealed. And if it's not going to be revealed here, say you're just really good, or I'm just really, really good at covering it up, he says, it doesn't do you any good to get through this life because there is a life to come in which he promises it will be ultimately discovered. And he tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, he says, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or bad. Romans 2:16 on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men's of men by Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Some of you might be thinking, well, Merry Christmas to all of us with this wonderful, exciting, encouraging hypocrisy sermon. If you're new to us, I didn't choose this. It's just the next text uh, in line of us working through the Word of God, which helps us, does it not, not to escape things that are uncomfortable. It's a blessing of God for us to be able to do it, but some might be sitting back and saying to yourselves, Hey, I thought this was about fear. Can we get back to the subject of fear? All you've talked about is hypocrisy. And what I would say is hypocrisy is the essence of fear. It's the it's the fear of being discovered. It's living a life that is a lie. It's so living a life and saying, I'm a good husband or I'm a good wife or I'm a good this or I'm good that or I'm, I'm faithful to the church and I'm faithful in all we do or I'm faithful in my business and all the sight in the darkness with nobody else knowing there's a completely different life being lived. There's sin that is ultimately crept in and it's beginning to decay. And what we find with this is it's a lot like that leaven. It starts so small just because of a little bit of pride. Somebody says something and we want to be able to cover up. Well, now we're stuck. Now we've told a lie. How are we going to get out of the lie? Well, we could come clean, but no, instead, what do we do? We need to cover it up with another lie because it's just our pride again. It keeps getting us, and we keep getting locked into this imprisonment until the point that we are way into this thing, way over our heads. And so oftentimes what we need to understand is that then we're really caught because now we're not only guilty of the particular sin, but now we're guilty of the, of the sin of hypocrisy, and everybody knows everybody hates a hypocrite. I mean, even today, you could say, I mean, you could get away with almost any other sin, but you don't want to be a hypocrite. It's why, it's, it's why I wrote down here, I said, it's like a drug dealing, wife abusing, drunken thief that boasts, I may be many things, but at least I'm not a hypocrite. <laughs> and so the fear comes to that point. It's not just the sin that is going to be revealed, but now everybody knows of all the lies and how long I've been doing this and what am I going to ultimately do. What's the answer for this? that's the sin. What is the answer? How do we overcome it? We overcome it by embracing the warning that Jesus gave that no matter how much we want to cover up, no matter how much we want to hide it, it's going to come to light. And some people are going to have trouble with that because they're going to sit there and go, wait a minute, that shouldn't be our greatest motivation. Our greatest motivation should just be love. We should come clean and we should profess our sin and confess our sin. And we should follow God just simply because we love him right on. But there are some times that the sin has been going on so long, the last thing we really are doing is loving God. And our heart has become so hardened. We're not thinking about love of God. We've only been thinking about ourselves. And so what God has to do is in his grace and mercy, he has to shake us and wake us. He has to shake us up and go, brother, I'm telling you, you may not do it for your love of me, but I need you to understand that the danger is you're going to be found out. And so that is, in essence, of love. This is, this is, again, this is the kind of warnings that we give to our children. Isn't it an act of grace and mercy? It's an act of grace and mercy. We go to our children and we tell them, hey, do you know Daddy loves you? Yes, Daddy loves you. Well, Daddy wants you to go and clean your room. Would you go clean your room for me? Uh, Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. Would you do it for Daddy? Sure, I'll go and do it. Then sometimes there's, no, I ain't going to do it, right? And then you have to sit there and go, okay, well, then here's what's going to happen. The love card didn't work. Let's go to the next step. And the reason is is because your heart is hard with sin. And I still love you. I can't allow you to keep being disobedient. So I am going to give you the rough thing to try to shake you up out of your sin and understand what is actually going on. And and, and what's, what's, what's interesting here is, as I'm preaching this very message, I can promise you that either in this place or people who are listening, that there are men and women in steeped Sin that is secret that nobody knows about and they are hiding it and it is going to come out And so what do we do? We heed his warning and here's what we do. We begin by confessing So we confess first to god. Yes, that's what we do We confess to god we come to him and we're playing in sin over here and the devil just has us bound And and i'm not just talking about like necessarily just a sin that you've committed a long time ago But the sins that that sometimes you and I are in that we can't break that we're caught in the midst of it. And the best thing to do is to be able to bring it to light. And that way to do is to confess it before God. And confession is just agreement with God. It's agreeing, God, I've sinned against you. I've rebelled against you. This is, this is contrary to who you are. It's not right. That's what confession is. And then there are some times when that sin, hidden sin, is so grievous and, and you are so stuck in it. Do you understand what I mean? You're you're, you're like, I'm not going to answer that. Uh, You're so stuck in that sin, you can't get out that it is necessary for you and I to be able to confess to another brother and sister in Christ. You don't get up in front of everybody and announce it on social media. Don't do that. You go to somebody that you know that you can trust, somebody who knows the word, somebody who loves God, because you have to break out of this. As long as you're in the darkness, darkness is like building a ladder for the devil to climb all over you. Once you bring it to light, he no longer has a foothold. And so what I would say, and so, so here's, here's kind of your options. Either hold it, and, and here's the idea, and, and this happens all the time. People sit back and they go, I'm going to hold this in. Nobody's going to find out. I'm going to continue in that sin. I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing, and eventually it comes out. You've got your choice. You either bring it out or it ultimately comes out. That's, that, that's the threat. And the best thing about bringing it out is it demonstrates true repentance. When a person gets caught, everybody is still thinking and wondering forever, did you repent because you got caught? Or did you repent ultimately because of what you have done and because your heart is broken before God? Tough message. But what a horrible way to live as a believer in Jesus Christ. Underneath the fear of discovery, when Jesus Christ has come to set us free. So we have this idea, first fear, The fear of discovery. Second fear, and they're closely related, is the fear of men. Look, if you will, beginning in verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. For I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. According to Jesus, there's two ways in which people live their lives. Either under the fear of man under or the fear of God. And this would have been true for his disciples. This would have been the real danger for them. Jesus had, is going to be killed. He's going to be uh, crucified by the religious leaders, in essence. They had the authority to be able to bring all this about. Well, guess what? When Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father, the disciples are going to remain. They are going to have to live with those same religious leaders who have the power to arrest them, a power to beat them, a power to make their lives miserable and to, to, to even take their very life. And so, so so, the question then is for them is, how is it or how are they going to now be able to do what God has called them to do, commission them to do, to take the gospel throughout the whole known world, be serious about making disciples? And at the same time, how are they going to do that while they're fearing man because of what they're going to do to them, but because of what they say and what they do, the answer to that is they couldn't. They simply couldn't do either, and neither can you and I. We cannot fear God and live this life simultaneously, at least not in the way that God had ultimately meant it. And so yet so many of us do live our lives in the fear of man. We are captive to the opinions of other people. And I say opinions of other people because the truth is not a whole lot of people at this point in the United States has the authority to beat us up and to be able to put us into prison. We're not quite there yet, but we don't even have to be because it's really just the the opinions of other people that are ultimately controlling so many of us. It starts when we're so young, doesn't it? I remember when I had hair when I was little, I did. And it's funny because some of, the, some of our, our kids will see two of our daughters who have kind of curly hair and they go, where'd they get the curly hair from? I'm like, me. And, they're like, <laughs> <laughs> right. and I just had this really bushy head of hair. Remember, I was born like in the early 70s. So imagine what my parents did with hair, right? And so nothing, they did nothing in the 70s with hair. They just let it do its thing. They let hair be hair. And so, so it was very curly. And, and, and I remember I'd go and get a haircut. And I'd get a haircut or I'd get a brand new pair of shoes. Remember those wonderful shoes that you got from Walmart? Excuse me, not Walmart, Kmart. You remember? You bought them in Ben's, not in boxes. Ben's. Remember these? You get them out, you find out which shoe do you want. You have to dig to the bottom to be able to find your size. And they're all like connected together with a piece of plastic. And you can't really fit them, put, try them on like normal people. You have to put one on at a time. You know, you put, put one on and you flop around like this because the other one's there. Or she says, we need to make sure that both work. So you put both of them on and then you have to walk around like this to see if they ultimately fit. And I remember getting brand new shoes. And I remember this one time it had a, it, my, my, my mom was like, hey, these, th- those are like those Nikes, the, like those Nike shoes you have. And I'm like, yeah, but the problem is the swoosh is upside down, Mom. And it was an upside down swoosh. And she goes, nobody will even notice. Everybody noticed. (laughs) And the problem is, I mean, as a kid, can I be honest with you, I was was petrified. I was scared to death of what my peers were ultimately going to say. That same kid can grow up and he could get to college and he's a believer in Jesus Christ and And he believes everything that the Word of God says, and he gets into a classroom, and they begin to speak things that are antithetical to God. He just remains, now he's not only afraid of his peers, but he's afraid of his professors. And then he thinks one day he'll grow up, and all this peer pressure will be done, and all this pressure will be done, and then he gets into the workplace. He gets into the workplace, and now he's afraid to say anything about God. He's afraid to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that he ultimately works with. He's just afraid of it all. And what ends up happening to him is he just never speaks. Why? Because he's now in fear of his employer, that he's going to lose his job. All of these are a result of a misplaced fear. And his book, and it's an excellent book, Edward Welch, in his book, When People Are Big, suggests that within the Scriptures there are three reasons why we fear people. He said, number one, we fear people because they can expose and humiliate us. Number two, we fear people because they can reject, ridicule, and despise us. Number three, we fear people because they can attack, oppress, and threaten us. He goes on to say that these three reasons have one thing in common. They see people as bigger than God. They see people as more powerful and more significant and more author- and having more authority than God himself. And he says, and out of the fears that this creates in us, we give other people the power and the right to tell us what to feel, what to think, and what to do, and what a horrible way to live the Christian life. So what is the cure to fearing man? The cure is to fear God. And so what Jesus does here is he actually gives us an argument from lesser to greater. That's what's happening. He says, what's the worst thing? Stop and think about the worst thing that man can do to you. What is the very worst thing that he can do? Well, the worst thing he can do is he could take your life. That's it. All he can do is take your life. And some people are like, I think that's a pretty big thing. They could take our life. But that is thinking more like a lost world, is it not? Because for a lost world, that's everything. If I lose my life, I've got nothing left. A believer understands there's far more than what we have in this life. In fact, we view this life, according to James, as a vapor. This is just kind of like just hanging around, hanging out for a little bit before we go into eternity. And so the idea that we find in what Jesus is saying is, why would you fear a person that all they can do is kill you and they can't impact your eternity? Wouldn't you rather fear the one that can not only put you to death, but also can put you under eternal judgment? Don't fear man, but rather to be able to fear God. Now, let me suggest something. I don't think that what he's saying here is he's trying to drive fear into the heart of the believer. I don't think that he's trying to do. I don't think he's trying to sit there and say, hey, believers, every day, I want you to think that there's one who can throw your soul into hell. I don't think that's it. Now, that may be for the person who is unbelieving, and that may be a legitimate concern and a legitimate warning, but for a believer in Jesus Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't worry about an impending judgment. That judgment was had and completed and satisfied on the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on a cross. We're not looking forward to that. No, we're not worried about that. So what is he trying to do? He's simply saying this, why fear man when their power and authority is so small compared to an infinitely great authoritative powerful god it's a lesser to greater in fact the type of fear that he's talking about here we have to make sure that we understand it's different he's not talking about to dread god he's talking to revere god it means to sit back and to look and to and to be so overwhelmed with god's goodness that all of a sudden you see how big he is and when you do you see how small man is my dog blue some of you know him blessed wonderful dog I love him. I'm just not so sure he loves me. It's part of the problem. He, my wife laughs because it's true. We, we don't think he has any affection for anybody except for really whoever is going to do something for him, it seems like. But uh, he will most of the time either be with me or my wife. And a lot of times he'll be with me if I'm on the couch. And, and a lot of it has to do with I think he's just kind of looking after his own self-interest. I think he's, he's kind of like, hey, he's bigger than everybody else. Uh, so I'm going to make sure that everything's good between he and I. And if that is, then if anybody else messes us, then, hey, we're, we're okay, because I'm with him. Well, the problem is, is when somebody bigger than me comes in the door and comes over to eat. If they're larger, so don't be offended if you come over to eat, by the way, and the dog is hanging out with you. I'm not calling you big. Well, I kind of am. But anyway, so, so they come in, and if they're, it just doesn't take much to be bigger than me. All right. And so um, I know I look 6'5 on the platform, but uh, I'm not. So. When somebody comes over, all of a sudden, I, I realize that the dog will go, and he'll just... And he's a little bit too big to be on the lap. He's about 55 pounds. He's not huge, but he'll jump right into the person's lap, and I'm sitting there going, Blue, leave me alone. You, you come over here. And he's just kind of looking at me like, I ain't going over there. <laughs> and he just won't come over, and he'll stick with that person the entire time. Here's what I think is happening with him. I think that he's just smart where he's sitting there going, hey, man, I've got no fear of you because this guy is bigger than you. <laughs> and so I think... A a way to be able to look at this is, you know what? When we preach and when I preach here and whoever's preaching, we try to preach Christ. We've tried to preach God in his glory and his goodness and his might and his authority and all of these things here. Why? You need more than anything else that you think you might need is a bigger picture of God. You need to know how big he is so that the fears of this world fall away as you stand in reverence to a holy god and this god that we are in fear of it's it's not just the idea that we fear him because of his authority and his power there's a reverence there because of his great love did you read that last portion of this are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and one of them is forgotten before God? So he's talking about sparrows. Sparrows were basically insignificant animals. Basically, you you could pick them up at the grocery store—not really grocery store, but at the market, right? Uh, what he says says five for two pennies. Now, some have brought up that this sounds contradictory to Matthew's account. Matthew says uh, two birds for one penny. Uh, and they say, oh, it's a contradiction. See, it's really not the same. And you sit back and go, you know, have you ever, have you ever shopped at Costco, right? You get more, you pay less, right, for each one. And so here's that you can either have one for two or you can have uh, five for two or something like that. I'm messing up my math. But you understand what I'm saying. Uh, and, and, and so it's really not that big of a deal. But the idea is they just really didn't cost much money at all. They were, as far as God's created creation, they, in the, the people's eyes, they were insignificant. But yet God knows every single one of them. He knows where they live, he feeds them, he he takes care of them. They don't even have to worry, they don't have to do any things. He's looking after them. And then what does Jesus say here? He says... He says, and not one of them is forgotten by God. Not one of them. As insignificant as you might think they are, they're not forgotten. He says, and even the hairs of your head. So what he's doing is going from lesser to greater. He's saying this this animal that nobody really cares about or thinks about, God has in mind and has not forgotten even one of them. And if they were at the lowest part of the created order, then at the pinnacle of God's created order is you and I. How much more can you and I be secured that God loves us? He says, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God counts he, something that you seem to be even trivial about yourself. How many hairs you have on your head? Scientists tell us approximately 100,000. Some of us have less. <laughs> and God sometimes has to do more counting from day to day than, than, than with others. But that was low-hanging fruit, so I decided to go there. But the idea there is, is this, is that at the end of the day is... He loves you. So he says, fear not. You are of more value than any of these sparrows. This is the one that we reverence. Not only is he ultimate in power, not only is he ultimate in authority, but he is ultimate in love. One of the fears that you and I have of really living for God and living for righteousness is to be alone. is to be abandoned, to be rejected, to be silenced. That, that's one of our fears. And you know what he's telling us? You can never get away from me. I'll always love you. I'll always care for you. Nothing happens in your life that you are not alone. No matter what the world does, I will be aware of, and I will love you, and I will take care of you. So this is the God that he's showing us. This is the God that we should fear. Not man, but rather of God. Philip Ryken, in, in his commentary on the book of uh, Luke, refers to, tells a story about John Knox, who was a reformer in Scotland. And here was a man that was known for his boldness. And he would call out monarchs, kings, rulers, because of their denial of the sovereignty of God. And he would go to battle to be able to defend the honor of God. And people were just amazed at his boldness. Well, at his funeral, when he was buried in the grave, uh, somebody by the graveside pronounced Knox's epitaph. And here it was. Here lies the one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Let us be people that fear God so much, that see him for so, so glorious of a God and powerful and authoritative that he is, that you and I can actually live this Christian life because you and I are in not fear of what a man may do to us. The worst they could do to, is to kill us. And if they kill us, we're immediately in the eternal presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, what kind of fear are you dealing with today? Is God concerned? Absolutely. Beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are harboring sin, secret sin within your heart, here's what's going to happen. We go over this, you're going to feel guilty a little bit, but you're going to double down, and you're going to sit there and say, I'm okay. You're probably not okay. This message is even a warning to you because, because, yes, there will be destruction when it comes out, either by you bringing it out or it being discovered, But but at the end of the day, the longer this goes on, the more devastation, pain, and damage it's ultimately going to do. Begin with the confessing of God. If necessary, we begin to confess with another believer in Jesus Christ that can help us. problem. You don't have to live in that fear anymore. Christ has come to deliver you. Perfect love casts out all fear. And for us, some of us that are just fearful of what other people think about us, Fearful about what somebody might do f- uh, to us if they know that we're believers or because we're standing for him, we're speaking out on him. Fall in love with Jesus, get to know him, learn him more, get in the Word of God, find out who he is, and then the fears of this world will begin to fade away in light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for the time that we have together. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus that we will respond to your truth in the word this morning. God, I pray that, Lord, some who are just so burdened and overwhelmed with their secret sin will confess it before you. Confess it towards a friend. Confess it towards a loved one. God, don't allow there'll be another day for them to be imprisoned with this, always expecting, always thinking, somebody's going to find out, somebody's going to say something and how exhausting that is. How many people I've talked to, I've talked to, Lord, that once they've kind of come clean with that, that there's a relief in them and the damage, the, the difficulty begins of trying to navigate through it, but the damage ends at that particular point. Continued damage. So God, I just pray that we will come to you, that we will trust you with that and that of course just finally lord that we will trust you and and the fact that lord will only fear you and you alone help us to live according to that truth in Jesus name amen